This week on The Lunch, we're talking with writer-director Michael Rosenbaum about his new film, Back in the Day. Don't forget, The Lunch is brought to you by Snoot Entertainment. Snoot Entertainment, makers of fine independent films like You're Next. James Rocky, and you're listening to The Lunch, a podcast about film and, yes, food, where every week we talk with a creator or a critic in the world of film over a midday meal and then record this podcast. This week, it's very much my pleasure to have as my guest, Mr. Michael Rosenbaum. Mr. Rosenbaum is the star, director, and writer of his new film, Back in the Day, which is available on VOD now and will be in theaters on the 17th of January from Screen Media. Mr. Rosenbaum can be found at mrosenbaum711, and you may know him from films like Sorority Boys. I mean, I want to mention... had to, and I love that movie, by the way. Well, here's the thing. I was actually talking with somebody while I was watching back in the day about the Harlan Williams connection, because, of course, is that where you and Mr. Williams met? We met on Sorority Boys. And also that, in terms of comedic drag performances, you're no Bugs Bunny, you're no Jack Lemmon, but you really deliver in that film, curling yourself into it. You hear that out there? He likes sorority boys, it sounded like. Uh, uh, no, let me rephrase that. I like your performance in <laughs> oh. sorority No. <laughs> well, you know, I, again, I, you know what I try to do is I just try to, take, I try to play every role. I try to ground it a little bit. I just try to find some reality to that character. Because you could easily just go ridiculous and be ridiculous. It's easier having a dildo fight in the movie for crying yes. out loud. So somehow you just have to play the character as real as you can and hope it pays off. Hopefully people will buy into it. Anytime a comedian does that as a comedic actor, are you thinking Bugs Bunny with the dress on? Is that a role model, like that kind of goofy femininity? You know, I think it's just I try to I try to think about when my mother dressed me up in fifth grade as Pat Benatar and I sang Shadows of the Night in a very conservative town in Newburgh, Indiana, where I went to grade school, and uh, how uncomfortable I was. And my mother actually gave me the lipstick and the boobs and everything. It was like a talent show, and it's, this is like a young boy. What did you do to your mom? That you you're going to be the first preschool. Lynching. Let me give my yeah. mother credit. Uh, it was my idea. I was a bit of an extra. So you had the Benatarded idea. Uh, yes. And, and Benatarded? Yes. You said? She helped with I, the execution. I'm going to use that. Please feel free. I will. Um, yeah, go ahead. Speaking of Newburgh, Indiana, it's where you shot back in the day. And all kidding about sorority boys aside, back in the day, your character is an actor in L.A. who has the great security gig of being a spokesperson for an insurance company and finds that kind of success a little bit chafing, goes back home for the high school reunion, that crucible of all human development. Yes. But you shot it where you grew up, and you did not have to. I mean, you worked on Smallville for years. You knew about where to shoot in Canada for good tax credits and where you can get quality crews. And I found myself liking that. Was it important for you to go, I'm shooting this not just because I know it, but because I can plug the, I'm sure, small budget of this film in no small way back into my hometown economy? Yeah, there was just no, there was no choice for me. There was no choice. I said, you know, people told me, Los Angeles, you'll save so much money if you do that. Shoot Everybody gets to sleep in their own bed. Exactly. You'll get more actors to do this. It's pilot season. Are you crazy? And I thought, if this is my first and my last movie, i got to shoot at my hometown. I know this town inside out. This is where I grew up. And I don't know how you could uh, replicate going to the old Pizza King and the neighborhoods where we used to jump over fences and drink out of garden hoses and, uh, you know, catch fireflies. And it was just, it was kind of a magical place in a lot of ways. And I felt like, you know, this is this is what I know and I want to go shoot there. I want it to look like 
I want it. I know what Indiana looks like. I can't imagine any other place looking like Indiana. Uh, it's, it, I mean, I grew up in you know central Ontario, and that kind of like that foliage, that flatness, the way the suburbs immutably blend into like nothing but forests and creepy. You can't like, recreate that, can you? No, you can't. I mean, it, it was. <clears throat> The, uh, there was a Calvin and Hobbes documentary recently, and a lot of that focused on, like, foliage in right, art sure. and how, you know, living in L.A., I miss fireflies, thunderstorms, and changing foliage. I mean, that's wonderfully said, you know, because I, that, that's how I feel. I miss, ultimately, it just comes down to I miss the seasons. Yes. I miss the simplicity of growing up in a small town and the, and the things we would do, and, the, and then just the people, how... Uh, easy and laid back they are in a lot of ways and you come out here and as much as I and I'm not putting down LA it's, I, this is where I've lived in the last, for the last 14 years and I've had a lot of success and I'm grateful but I I go home twice a year and I play wiffle ball and I go visit my friends and I see my family and I there is that sort of you know in the character of Jim that I play there's a lot of me there it's like the guy who always longs to go back and what did he miss I'm 41 years old right now and I don't have a family really like a, a wife or kids and if I would have stayed there I would have maybe I, of course I could have been divorced <laughs> right yeah. you, so you, you always I always think there's a parallel version of me living in Mississauga Ontario being a lawyer like my dad wanted to and then I picture but am I happy am I rooting for the Blue Jays I just don't know and that's exactly what I tried to convey without throwing it so much at you I just wanted you to say that you know everybody longs to go home everybody thinks about you know when it's time to go home that one time a year or whenever they go back and but I think in this case he's surprised by how content people sort of are and they're happy with their lives and it's not about it's more about him trying to find his way and what's right for him and which direction he's going to go for the rest of the rest of his life and again and not to it's it sort of takes a lot of very familiar things from a traditional i'm a going back home rom-com sure very much plays with them in terms of character and what have you but i mean your character though hasn't been home in about 10 years was it, was it's been it, a while was it nice to tap into like I go home every two years and my character's going to be a jerk who left the hometown in the dust yeah <laughs> I guess you know in a way I don't really consider him a jerk he's just one of those guys who his friends said he's, he's leaving and we're not going to see him because he, he's destined for bigger things and he's now back 10 years, so he feels like he's disappointed his friends in a lot of ways. And he, you know, his friends think he's a bigger star than he is. He goes, guys, I'm not that. In fact, in the script that, you know, that I wrote, uh, it used to say, you know, there were lines that were cut. Were, guys, I'm not, I'm not that big of a star. I mean, come on. I just, well, the whole know, thing is you get to go to Lakers games. And it's like you can go oh, to a yeah. Lakers game if you buy a ticket. Yeah. And, you, know, you hang out with, uh, you know, in the script he says, uh, what does he say, uh, 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 Paris Hilton and uh, Lindsay Lohan. I, what? Yeah. This misconception of what you do. Now, and, and there is that misconception in L.A. It's like, come on, man, how many girls do you, how many celebrities have you? Come on, right. what do you do? And I'm like, wow, I wish it was that easy. There's this realm of what I like to call celebrity, which is where you work and you do okay, but nobody cares when you go grocery shopping. And it's weird that like we're conditioned to think of you need that extra level of being surrounded by people and having people take pictures of you grocery shopping. I mean, we're recording in West Hollywood. I would, I would always see paparazzi in the, the parking lot of the Whole Foods down there. Right, right. And I would immediately throw a brick at them. No. <laughs> No. You should have. No, oh, please. It would have been a great story. Technically, it shouldn't be a crime, but tragically, it is. Uh, well, maybe in the future. 
when we, they're working on when that, we have right? paparazzi some, hunting. I Holly Berry in the in the court, and she was talking about who knows, maybe you know, we'll be able to, you know, they'll be able to defend them. So they've been good to me. I mean, I'm not a huge star, so I, I have it pretty easy. They just, you know, at the Grove, Michael, what do you think of this? And I go, I don't really know what the hell you're talking about. I always think that if you're standing at LAX waiting to ambush people, that's got to be some circle of hell. Like you were in your high school AV club, you love shooting footage, and now you're like waiting at ramp 33. Yeah, and how do you find out about that? I thought like they're supposed to be protected by those airports, aren't we? How do they find? I guess it's easy. They just pretend they're you or whatever. Or you know the whole thing of Twitter feeds because we're we're now volunteering oh, to live so, in the pandemic. Wait a minute, you're right. So when I say I'm flying out tomorrow, it's kind of my fault, isn't it? You there was a piece of right. NYT about this young lady named Sarah whose nickname is Stalker Sarah, and she was able to figure out from One Direction's Twitter feed when the band were landing and deduced that they would then be going to In and Out closest to the airport because they love it, and she found them there. Brilliant. Now, this kid is like 13, 14. If we could get her looking for Al-Qaeda leaders, we might have something. Send her over. You have plenty of orchestral maneuvers in the dark in your film. Is it, is yes. it, is it nice as, like... It's nice to hear you say their name. Say it again for Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark. Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark. That's OMD for you out there who never knew what that stood for. I'm so, most of you probably do. I think if you're an OMD fan, you probably know. And if you're not an OMD fan... What do you fast forward right now? Yes, uh, but and stop. How satisfying is it to play with all of the "I grew up on John Hughes" stuff? You know, I to mean, be that that generation which was simultaneously made and unmade by the expectations of Sixteen Candles. I, I'm glad you said that because uh, he was obviously many an inspiration of many, and um, you know, I grew up watching John Hughes, and then I love Sandler, and I like you know uh, the, the Farrelly Brothers early stuff. And and, and that's kind of my inspiration. So I was like, well, I still want to make my own movie. And I want to have some innocent moments, some real moments, some dark moments. But I want to, you know, so I was trying to make it my own. But I was definitely influenced by those guys. But the music, I mean, the 80s music is just something that, if you want to know who sang Too Shy Shy, you, you ask me. Kajagugu. Or you. Yes. Ask you. <laughs> I but, feel like you and I might have the same half of a generation at Tail and a Gen X amulet. But do you listen to me, uh, metal at all? Do you, not metal, but like uh, metal rock kind of love Here, songs? I mean, I look like an accountant, but I like the Queens of the Stone Age as much as the next guy. With How about White Snake? That is not my jam. Kicks? No. Don't close your eyes. No, that was the music of the people who beat me up in high school, so I tended to embrace it later. I was a nerd in high school. I was the smallest kid in my high school, so I can relate. I was not popular. As you see Jim coming back, and he's like, he was like the homecoming guy. That was just, that's, that's stuff you can just write down and say, hey, look, I was popular. The other thing is, it's interesting, on the actual, on the, you have bloopers at the end, and on the, uh, on the slate is Old Days. Was that the original title? Which oh, has a slightly like more... Credit, it's yeah. in, by law, you have to put the LLC or or whatever it is, you have to put old days. The original title was called Old Days. And, um, you know, there was talk of, you know, for marketing, it was like, well, old days, you're at the end of the alphabet, you want to be up in the front. And, they, and this is how they, they talk about things. And I was like, oh, that's kind of stupid. Then I started to realize it's not that stupid because you're, you're up in the B's instead of, but also it was like, well, old days look old, old school maybe, it's trying to be that, or is old days about old people? What are we talking about here? So I thought back in the day kind of just meant, you know, everybody says that. I hear right. everybody say that of all ages. Back in the day, I used to read the Village Voice. I mean, right. even Back I'll... in the day, we used to do this, and this is, this is, it fits the movie, I think. So, but yes, it does say old days in the credits because we had to by law. Yeah, uh, and that was, it's interesting because the whole thing of 
VOD titling. You right. Know, yeah, so that whole, you're artificially competing in a marketplace which is driven purely by alphabetization. But, you know, I say, you know, I, I, you, you can download a movie. It, it's pretty genius now. I used to kind of sort of, I didn't wasn't educated really on it, so I was like, oh, my gosh, they're everywhere. All these movies, it's oversaturated, and it is. However, it gives the independent filmmaker a chance to actually get people to see the movie. It gets people to maybe make his money back. You know, so one of the best things I stumbled upon last year was a six thousand dollar zombie movie on iTunes called The Battery. Which really? which is about these two friends who are well not quite friends, who are co workers from a B level baseball team and left after the zombie apocalypse. And okay, it, all right, it, all right, stop now. You're gonna email me that because The I'm Battery, gonna... yeah. It's a oh. great it feels like a John Sales movie with the walking dead in it. It's about these two Ooh. guys who kinda don't like each other and they're all each other has now. And they were shot for nothing. Shot for nothing, and to, in my mind, shot smarter than World War Z. Or they call it in Canada, World War Z. They do, don't yeah. they? World War Z. We're Absolutely. Talking, we're talking with Michael Rosenbaum about his new film, Back in the Day. How completely... When you Did you know you were directing this when you wrote it? Was that the whole thing? Uh, I mean, you jokingly said, this is my first film, it could be my last film. But did you write it thinking, I'm going to ship it around, or did you write it going... I'm nailing this baby. I, I'm going to be honest with you. I never thought I would direct if you asked me this 10 years ago. I was just acting. I wanted to act. I wanted to do that. <clears throat> and then with a lot of time on set on Smallville, I started to write. And uh, a friend of mine, Carrie Fisher's, you know, read some things that I'd written. So, you know, you should try to write a script. And, try. and so I started writing, and then I sold some things that never made it. You know, they got sold, but they never, you know, appeared anywhere. And then I wrote this years ago. And at first I thought, I'll play the lead, and someone else will direct it. And as time went on, I said, I'm on Smallville so long. Why, don't, why not? And, wow, something's going wrong. So, you know, I said, uh, I'm going to direct an episode of Smallville. Why not? I'm here. I had the opportunity. So I learned a lot from that. And I just decided, you know what, I, I think I could do this. Maybe it was a bit of ego, but maybe, but I think really in my heart of hearts, I, I felt like I could tell the story. I've been on set enough to watch the cameras, pay attention to how the filmmakers are working, watch a lot of movies. I'm not going to have a lot of budget. And that's what I didn't. You know, hindsight's twenty twenty. I, I I looked. I realized that my budget was really low. Yeah. And how am I going to do this? How am I going to shoot a crane shot? How am I going to have I, overtime? How am I going to shoot eight pages a day where studios shoot a page or two a day? How am I going to do this? And you don't realize it till you're just knee deep in it, and you just kind of got to go with it. And you know, it was. Directing is not the most. It's not the easiest thing. But I, I will say this: my next film, I'm not going to be the lead role in it. <laughs> because even while you're saving money on salary, you're running around wearing too many hats. And that and you have, you have nobody yell at when you break up in a take. For the most part, I, I, thought, I found myself just really focused on everyone else and making sure they got good takes and making sure they, they were taken care of because they came all the way to Indiana during pilot season for no money to work and I wanted to make sure that they felt good about their work. And I trusted myself. I said, you know, I have to trust myself. But I did have, you know, my best friend on the side you know, it's really nothing about acting other than, other than to say, am I full of BS? Does he believe what I'm, what he's seeing? And my producer just kind of looked at me and go, yeah. It or, seems to work. Or maybe a little more energy. I, I knew the part. I wrote it. I, and what's funny is I was like, do I know these lines? I thought I'd have to rehearse them. I'd never even looked at the script. I was like, what are we doing? Oh, this scene, yeah. And it just came to me. And I never thought it would. It somehow it was just in the subconscious. And um, Look, it was. it's crazy when you're on a set and you're actually acting 
with another actor, and then you're saying, uh, the camera's moving on the right. I told you I wanted it static. Don't move the camera. Hey, Marina, say this line and let, again. And let's talk about our deep feelings. Right. Yeah. And, and say, hey, let's get... And sometimes, you know, but I told the actors beforehand, take one, we're going to do it as written. Take two, if we've got it, we're going to have some fun. And I want everybody to loosen up. And I could see while I'm acting, people are a little stiff or this or that. And I'd, I'd you know, and if Harlan said something funny or Nick Sports said, these are comedians, these are stand-up comedians, let them roll, let them go off. I tried to cross shoot, which is a camera on you and a camera on me at the same time. Soderbergh for Valimi with uh, uh, the uh, interrogation scene just had two cameras on sandbags, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, look, I, we, again, we had, uh, we didn't have any overtime. We didn't have, we couldn't go over. We just didn't have the money. We couldn't, pay, <coughs> couldn't pay people. So. Uh, and I thought this would be, I'd be done once I was done directing the movie. I thought, that's it. Okay, I directed the movie. I edited it. Okay. But then it's now, it's an independent movie. It's my movie, essentially. Now I have to go in all the meetings for the distributors, and I have to meet. I mean, it's nonstop. And now it's almost two years later, and the movie's out today. We read the movie out today on iTunes, and I'm, I'm like, it's been two years, and I haven't taken much work because I haven't been able to, so... Uh, the passion project is paying off in passion. Yeah, I, it was it was the best time of my life. It really was just working with my friends, working with the community and the generosity that Newberg, you know, gave me was just. I mean, I just I really couldn't. Believe, I can't believe I actually did this. So not to wax your car too much, but very early on there was a shot where I thought that is a good visual eye, which is that you know it's not the standard. Oh, I'm an actor and I'm going to direct, but I'll make sure I have plenty of close-ups and all the good lines. And that's after the football hit flashback when you see the mascot looking deeply dejected. Just that really quick cutaway to his giant head. Do you, know that, do you know who that is? It's your brother. How'd you know that? They're called credits, and I read them. You do your research. I don't know how to answer Usually that. when the movie ends, people turn it off. No. Even you do your homework. You're, uh, you're like... You're unlike the others. Wait until I ask you those really important questions about the catering by Beef O'Grady. Isn't that a credit for the catering? Beef O'Grady's. Beef O'Grady's? Yeah. I misread it as Beef O'Brady's. No, it is Brady's. Beef O'Brady's. Is it the Brady Bunch or is it the Grady from Sanford and Son? Beef O'Brady's. Beef O'Brady's. Yes. Right. And they make a good sandwich? Oh, yeah. They have some good barbecue there. Is Indiana a barbecue location? Oh, people love barbecue. they got the barbecue shack. What else do they have? But you know what I know Indiana for? Well, they had the Log Inn, which was Lincoln stopped on one of his journeys across the country. And it's called the Log Inn, and uh, it's about 30 minutes away from where I grew up. And so I try to go there when I can. But what Indiana I feel is known for is the Stromboli at Pizza King. Ah, the Stromboli, the distinct wrapped... Meat. Uh, yes, meat-filled. <laughs> bread sandwich, bread meat sandwich. Every culture finds a way of wrapping protein and carbohydrates, whether it's naan or the burrito or the stromboli. Yep. And the stromboli is fairly easy to admire at the hand portable. I might have to send you one freeze-dried because that's what I made my sister do for me. And I ended do you mean up, frozen or freeze-dried? What is it? It's actually freeze-dried, right? Like, it's not freeze-dried. What's the thing called when they, you know, it's like the the, the hot, uh, the ice, the dry ice. Dry ice. That's Shipped cold, par-cooked. Like yeah, like that. That's, that's what it is. Up. Thanks for educating me. That's, that's exactly no, I'm a huge food science nerd in my spare time. Really? Yeah. I'm not. No? I eat pretty much anything. And we are here at Greenblatt's. In, we are. In and look at this. Look what we have here. I think, we're, I think we may need to take a brief uh, sandwich pause. I think I need a bite of my tuna sandwich. We'll be right back with a lunch in a few seconds. Yummy. Back with Michael Rosenbaum on the lunch after a brief uh, sandwich pause here at Greenblatt's Deli on the Sunset Strip. Um, 
you were talking about things like... Good sandwich. Very good sandwich. Oh, we'll oh, yeah. talk about that in a bit. We can but, talk about it. Yeah. Um, you were talking about things like early Farrelly Brothers and that kind of comedy, early Sandlers. And one of the notes I wrote uh, last night was bringing back the tasteful fart joke. Like, I mean, there's... Are you, wait, are you insinuating that I brought back a tasteful fart joke? Well, it was more like... While there was fart and poo humor, it was not overdone, grotesque. Oh, good, good. It's like, like, you know, and that and things like the constantly repeated intro cue of Marcy Playground sex and candy (laughs) becoming its own joke. Or, I mean, is it fun to just say we're going to have a five-minute-long take where Harlan Williams teaches a deadpan young man the art of gas hurling? (laughs) As our server comes up to the table. Exactly. Well, that's what I was trying to euphemize it politely. Yeah. This is real stuff. We're talking about Florence Angelique. Um, Nothing. Nothing. Uh, But, I mean, you just set that up and let it roll, right? Because he's... he's It was written, and when when Harlan read it, he said, Buddy, this is great. I've never seen anything like that. People do that? That's a disconcertingly good Harlan Williams in it. Oh, did you like that? Yeah. Uh, in the Midwest, when I grew up, you know, it was called it was called a little something a little different, but you know, I had to change the name. But we call it the Garvin, and you know, you'd cup it, you'd catch it, you'd roll it, right? And you you'd throw you know, you throw it at somebody. And I had friends who could actually do that. They could run, it seems like they could run a mile and hand it off. <laughs> <laughs> but you can see the kid in the scene struggling to not lose it. Oh yeah, so he's teaching Harlan in the scene is, as you say, he's teaching his son. Important to the important family tradition of far throwing, and at the end, there's a nice payoff. Yes, kid, you know. Yeah, and uh, you know, and yes, the, the scene, I let it roll, and my, my producer was like, "I mean, we got to move on to the next scene." I'm like, "This is my favorite." This is, and hearing Harlan, I mean, the scene's written like that, but when he says, when he's like tapping the kid's mouth, right, 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 right up there in the Tom Selleck, got right, right up there in the right, old, in right in the old catfish on her body, right in the old. Yeah, and it's just like I, and you can hear his fingers tapping off. Um, the young man's philtrum. And you can probably also hear the crew just laughing in the background. It was just, it was a, it was a fun day. And, you know, I, that's part of what I love about being on set is you, and being the director, is you, you have some control and you could say when to cut. You could say, we're doing it again. And you could say, this makes me laugh. Let's go bigger. Hey, what else do you have? Who you, something comes to mind. I threw the catfish hunter at him. I threw the, you know, and we worked together and I, just, I, I love that. I'm glad you, you could appreciate that because, you know, there were moments where I thought, should we just cut this? I'm like, no, we're not cutting the scene. It makes me laugh harder than anything. And that means something to me. Like, I, I refuse to cut that scene. But, I mean, there is a whole, like, weird topology of good poop jokes and bad poop jokes, sure. right? And a lot of it has to do with telling and tone and tenor and not being unkind. It wasn't, you don't ever see stuff for the most part. You, yeah. you, you know, you see his hand, you see, you hear a noise, but... You know, I mean, so even in the puking scene, you don't, you don't. Is there, hear is, there, it. is there just more pure comedy in cutting away and letting the imagination? I think so. I think most people don't want to see. In fact, you know, there was like talk: should we show? I go, no. It's already enough with the sounds of two people throwing up because one person's throwing up, the other guy gets sick from. You get the a animal. chain reaction. You get a chain reaction going, and there's two people throwing up, and that's funny. And just hearing someone who's not doing that watch them to me is comedy. Is their reaction? It's not the fact that these two people are puking is the other person going, are you kidding me right now? That's what's funny. So, uh, you know, it's a balancing act, and it's like, you know, a lot of times, and you have to have faith, too. I mean, I mean, the, the crew needs to have faith in you, because I think when we're shooting it, they're like, how is he going to cut this? How is, he gonna, how is this going to be funny? It seems kind of funny, but... How- and, you know, you're shooting in a tiny little bathroom, and we have this big camera, and we're trying to do handheld, and 
I, in my head, I just said, I know how to cut this. I know it's funny. And I got, and thank God. Yeah, laughter in the real world comes from like spontaneity and surprise and contradiction. And it's sure. hard to build up contradiction and surprise when you have to wheel a huge camera into a room. Yeah. It, it tends to like kill things while you're capturing them. And that's why I like to let things roll a little bit. Yeah. You know, I'll say, Jay, do it again. I, I need to see some really some pain here. You 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 must have ate something wrong. It's over the top. It's okay. I'm not feeling it. And, and then you'd go off. And sometimes I would yell in a in a funny kind of. I don't care if they're struggling. Do it again. The Eric von Stroheim whipping a riding crop off your boot thing <laughs> yes, like that. Yes. I wanted to talk to you about the cast because the thing is that this is an ensemble that knows how to swing together. Uh, Mr. Swardson always has the super big guzzle. In his fist, the way guzzlers or guzzler, guzzlers. I think, yeah, it's big a, guzzle, it's a nondescript, unsuable one. It's yeah, yeah sort of like the big gulp, but not, but completely not. different. But he always has it in his fist, like the hammer of Thor. And was that, that always that, very yeah. intentionally, always intentional? I mean, um, this is based loosely on a character that I grew up with, right? And every time he shows up, he's got his jack and diet, and he's got his big, you know, whatever it is, and he is stepping around, and he's always refilling it, and he brings his bottle of jack, and he's the umpire. And that's that's who he is. He's a fun-loving. Uh, Jack guy. and Diet always seems like a hopeful contradiction, doesn't it? Yeah, I think for most, most yes. Yeah. I, I guess so. I, mean, I always call it a little ditty. Yeah. Does that make sense? Because a little ditty about Jack and Diane. So it's people really have to think about it. A little ditty about Jack and Diet. Figure. Write the, that down. On that Melancampian note. <laughs> uh, also, you mentioned about shooting stuff with Ms. Baccarin. And, I mean, she's on Homeland now and pl- plenty of furrowed brows and crying Serenity, and all V, all these but things. But even on Serenity, she had a great light comedic touch. She didn't get to use as much as she could have being like a space courtesan. Was it, like, pleasant for you to just say, you're going to play a normal human being? Oh, yeah, it was pleasant for her. And what's funny is I cast her right here where you're sitting. Miranda was looking at me. And I said, what do you think of the script? And she said, I really like it. It's fun. It's it's charming. It just, it's just, I mean, I don't get to do a lot of this stuff. And I go, well, do you want to do it? And she goes, are you offering me the part? And I said, yeah. And she goes, yeah. And what, that was it. What you want to say is, no, Miss Baccarin, the part is being offered you. Like, really? Could you have hoped for any oh, better, quite man. frankly? I mean, what a treat. What a treat. Let me tell you something. One thing to you know, to get a you know a good actress uh, as beautiful as her available you know to be in your movie is anyone who is as giving and willing to work as hard as they could and never complained once never she was on set all the time and she tweeted once when she went off for a weekend somewhere I can't wait to be back filming I miss I miss everyone. And that, she doesn't even know it, but I touched my heart. I was like... Stultifyingly gracious, right? When somebody says they can't wait to get back to work. Ridiculously. And, and, I, and I just, I think everyone was like that. I, I was really, I wanted people to like where I grew up. And, uh, you know, but having her, having her there and, you know, have the chops that she had. And then she was nominated for an Emmy for Homeland. It's just like, and she's doing a movie like this. And it's just, it, sh- it shows you who she is. She doesn't take herself too seriously. And no one should. And, uh... I think that's what everybody let go in this movie. You just have to let go and have fun, and you know. And one thing was, you know, was surprising is I wanted it all to be to be grounded in a lot of ways. I wanted the characters to play as real as they could. Outlandish, but not unreal. Exactly, because and there were moments where I was like, not that drunk. I mean, you got a guy like Nick Swartzen who is a genius. You just let the camera roll. I mean, there's a scene where we're leaving the uh, barbecue and he's going to follow the pregnant chick to the car, Angie Kramer, and he's like trying to help her out. 
And that scene is improvised. Him doing bad that physical camera. stuff with the car seat. We've got five seconds left of daylight, and I let them two, those two, Liz Carey and Nick Swartzen, run, and it was magic. And it's one of my favorite scenes. I laugh every time I watch it. She's like, she's like, where are my kids? He's like, kids! And he's like yelling at, oh, there they are. And they like sees the, you know, yeah, where, where's the baby? And he's like, where's the baby? Because the baby's not in the little carriage. And wait, 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 someone stole the baby! And he's freaking out because he's a little drunk and he's a little. And but I, I just you know he just cracks me up. It was a, I'm very lucky to have all these actors in the movie. Uh, I'm also curious. I mean, you started writing with the character of Jim, sort of trapped in the success of the all all city insurance commercials, and then of course Isaiah Mustafa is in the film, who we all know as the Old Spice gentleman, right? With that great mix of uh, you know charm and irony he brings to that work. Did you ask him for advice about being that guy? Do you know what I said to him in the meeting over at? Uh, where do we meet? I think we met at Fred Siegel for lunch. A little, you know, fa- it sounds fancy, but it's really not. But we had a little salad They do a great there. salad. They do a good salad. And Isaiah, in as good a shape as he is, he likes salad. So I had to cater to his needs. Um, I looked at him, and he just has this genuine disposition. This, 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 you get the feeling that he's just a good guy. I mean, he's a hunk, he gets the girls, he, like ladies love him, but he's a genuine guy. And I said, would you grow a goatee? He's like, yeah. That was my impression of it. Yeah. And then I go, would you gain a little weight? Because my friend T isn't in horrible shape, but he's not ripped up like an Old Spice guy. Right. And he said, very few people in Indiana are posing for the camera shirtless. Well, very few people in life are. Yeah. I mean, come on, who wants to take off their shirt? Most people don't. You have to be pretty vain and whatever. Uh, and he said, absolutely, I'd love to do something different like that. So he gained 20 pounds. He, put, uh, he had, grew a goatee. He wore glasses for me. And he became the role. And you know what's funny is people really recognize his performance in this. I think they're surprised. I mean, he's an, he's an actor in this movie. I thought he was really funny, and his timing was great. And he's very likable. That's what I like about it's him. This, it's, he, he carries this note of self-contained bemusement with him, where, like, we all know this is funny. We're just not going to talk about it. Yeah. Did, did you get tips from him about being the commercial guy? Because I always like to be, ask people about their unsolicited public recognize. But when you're walking around with hair, your largest role is kind of masqueraded. I don't know if people recognize you from your voiceover work. Yeah, they, you know, not so much. It's usually from, honestly, it's either sorority boys or hit and run that came out sometimes. Right. But, you know, and mostly small though. Mostly small though. But I didn't ask him any questions. I just, I didn't even think of it. I should have. Right. But what's it like being that guy? What's it being like being the commercial guy? Do you ever get frustrated? But, you know, his is different because he's, all these women love him. And how could you ever And he owns relate? it. And he owns he it. Owns he owns the behaviors out of it. He certainly does. We we're talking with Michael Rosenbaum at Greenblatt's Deli in West Hollywood about his new film, Back in the Day. Let me ask you this. I'm, what was the worst day? I was watching a film, and at one point I went, that's kind of a severe light gradient. It could be the end of the day. It could also be... Are you talking about the wiffle ball scene? Right after the wiffle ball scene, with a severe light gradient when we were out in front of the house. <clears throat> no, actually, that part was... Oh, yeah, we were running out of time. That was the Swartzen scene. Um, we were running out of time. And, see, I think people will hopefully... I mean, it is a little, it's supposed to be a little darker because it's the end of the day. Right. But it just it felt like different weather. I guess it I was, it was, it was a, it was a little detail. overcast, probably. Yes, but you know what? Uh, that's fine that you saw that. But I was thinking you were going to say before that. <laughs> no. You didn't, so I'm not going to bring that up. But there, you know what happened was I had a shot list, and we had two and a half days to shoot 22 pages and a wiffle ball game and a barbecue and all these things and 
that day, you asked, you were beginning to ask me of how hard of a day, what was the hardest day, and I remember that day, it was, it was this, going into the third week, it was early in the week, it was Tuesday, and I just felt like it started to rain, and we had to move to handheld, shotless out the window, we had to block shoot, which means we had to shoot, like, the scenes, if you're sitting there, we're going to shoot, you're close up this scene, but we're going to stay in that direction and shoot the next scene, and then come back and turn the camera around on me and all the other scenes that are shot that way, because you don't have time to do the reverse. You just don't have time to do a setup for reverse. Right. Right. Um, at the same time, if that's the only sign of the budget you had manifesting on screen, well played. Yes, well, thank you. I mean, there was a, there was a stunt scene at the end when I'm, we're in a car chasing scene. Yeah. We had six hours to shoot a crazy, you know, me chasing Harlan and Skunk, his character Skunk, and trying to get him to pull over and, and stop what he's doing. And you're driving a minivan backwards in, in the tradition of bullet. It was risky. Great minivan but we had a stunt guy for that day, and it was risky. And, you know, I'll tell you, I mean, I wish I had another day. I mean, I wanted him to jump. Originally, I wanted him to jump through a billboard with my face on it with a big thumbs up that he jumps off the side of the road and smashes into a billboard of the all-city insurance commercial. But we didn't have that money. Again, we didn't have the time. We just had to do the best we could. You do not have Hal Needham money. You have you money. Yes, yes. Exa- that's exactly right. When you're working on something like this, when you're putting it together, there's always a hypothetical question of what happens if X drops out a week before shooting. Did you do that? Did you have, did you have to run around? Or was it you were able to lock in the cast early on? No, I don't think we locked in the cast till the end of week one of shooting. <laughs> we we had most of everyone, but we didn't have uh, some of the girls. I think Mike Haggerty, who plays the principal, who I love to death, and uh, he was an overboard and many you know guess great uh, character actor. Um, it, it was tough, and I was freaking out. You're directing every day, and then you're going like, you just can't. You, you have to know that it's going to come together. Somehow it will come together. Somehow my casting director Andy Andy McCarthy is going to call me and say, Hey, I just sent you four more. Uh, Humans tapes, four more yeah. tape, you know, auditions, and you have to make. Suddenly, finally, you have to just make a decision, and and, and I did. But uh, you know, Nick Swartzen, with about a week before we started shooting, said, "You know, I really like this, but the character seems too old for me." And it was originally an older guy, and I read it again. And I said, "You know what? He's right. He's, he's a little too young for this." So I changed the character around a little bit. I made him younger. I made him have a knee brace. I did all these character changes and I wrote an extra scene the scene in the car was written last minute with him and uh, that whole weird transitional let's desperately reclaim high school glory while thinking about how everything went wrong was written in probably 30 minutes and probably my favorite scene in the movie well because it's got like some real emotion underneath every it's gag real. of let's do it in a, in a vibrating minivan yeah and it's and, you know, as funny as it is but it's so it's you laugh but you're like oh Wait a minute. This is, it's really hard, but it's also there's. You're right. There's some uh, there's some real stuff in there. My uh, uh, relative of mine once had the cruel aphorism of "Stay away from people who wear their high school graduation rings in adult life. It tends to represent their high water mark." Wow. <laughs> I mean, I, this, this friend of mine is incredibly cruel. I don't even but, have a ring. Right, but <laughs> remarkably accurate. Yes. <laughs> Do. That's hilarious. Do you feel like, I mean, you've done this, you're thinking, oh my God, uh, if I ever write again, I won't direct, or if I ever direct again, I won't star in it. But which of the two would you rather do if you were forced to make the choice? Do you like the collaborative, you know, air marshalling people of you go over there and camera, or do you like the head, head in the work, wearing a turtleneck, stroking your beard, nerdery of writing? 
I really loved, I mean, I gotta tell you, I fell in love with directing. I fell absolutely in love with it. I love, the one thing I learned and I met with like Jason Reitman, friends of mine who directed Juno, and, and James Gunn who just directed Guardians of the Galaxy, a big Marvel movie, and Pete Siegel who did Tommy Boy, and all these director friends of mine. And they said, you don't have to be fancy with the camera. You don't have to do all these movements and be, tell the story, transition, and get the performances. And for me, I felt like being an actor, my, you know, most of my life, I felt like I, I, I know actors, and I, I knew what they were thinking and feeling, and I, I felt like I can get what I want out of them. And I think that, to me, was the most important thing. And, I, and so to answer your question, long story short, I, I love writing, but I love directing. I really do love directing. I mean, that's not to say I don't want to act anymore or do it, do it all. No. But I certainly wouldn't be the lead again. It was too much, too, too hard. It was too much. Did you have a thing of, I know how to deal with actors, but I have no clue what lens to use here or what lens to tell the cinematographer to use? No, that I knew that. A good oh, you knew I, that. I ordered a good <clears throat> DP, but you know, I did learn a lot. Hired like, I knew that. I knew that. It's like, Amazon, we'll send you a DP. <laughs> yes, I'm going to order. I, I, I knew what to do in a lot of ways. I said, you know what? Let's get 150 mil and shoot from, you know, way, way over yonder. Mm. And, uh, you know, and not let the actor not be so invasive. And he won't know, but he's still sort of close. We still got a waster on him or two T's, like, you know, you're up to his face. Or, so he can still see it. And he doesn't know he's being filmed, so he's looser and he's more natural. And I knew that as an actor, how I felt when they were like, oh, we already shot your close-up. Right. Of course, you have to tell the actor sometimes, hey, when we're on 150, you need to be still. Don't be moving around so much. Remember, you're, you're, like, you're like a deer in a telescopic <laughs> yeah, lens. So sometimes pop out of a frame. Right, sometimes it's different. But I, I, I knew, you know, sometimes I go, hey, you know, Marina looks kind of warped, and she's so beautiful. How, how do we, what, what lens is this? What is this, a 17 mil? This is really wide, so it's kind of distorting her. And, you know, wide-angle lenses are usually done. Obviously, they can be done in a creative manner. But for, you know, the, the big the scenes, the, shots, long, yeah. the, the, the shots to set them up and do a... Do a but, you know, I, I still didn't know a lot, and Bradley taught me a lot. But I knew what I wanted. I knew that these are the shots I wanted over. I want it dirty. I want to see some of my shoulder in the shot. I want it clean on Morena. I want 120 frames a second. I want it incredibly so, slow so you can see the penis coming into frame. Yes. I want, uh, you know, this to be only, you know, that, so so I, I knew some things. Um, is it also, it's also worth noting how you shoot the backyard wiffle ball game with all of the pomp and circumstance of, like, a John Lee Hancock shot in Victory. It's really, like, wow. all the sports cliche storytelling stuff boiled down to this, like, side yard wiffle ball game. And I wanted it to be like that. This is such a, you know, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, look at it, it's a wiffle ball game. It's not even baseball. It's right. wiffle ball. But to these guys, it means everything. It's, you so, know, it may be wiffle ball, but they're still keeping score. Exactly. And that's how I felt. I felt like, make, let's make it really dramatic music. Let's, you know, and it's, and it's ridiculous. And T... Isaiah is giving signs from second base. Like, who, what? What are you talking about? You're using a plastic ball and a plastic bat. But they take it so seriously because it's bragging rights. And that's what we always do. When we go back for wiffle ball, it's bragging rights if you win. And I haven't won in quite a few years. But you did all your own pitching, I'm sure. Oh, I did. Yeah, including that great drainer right in there. Right in the bucket. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it took me probably 14, but yeah. we'll edit that. <laughs> 
we've been talking about the aesthetics of Wiffle Ball and the film Back in the Day as written and directed by Mr. Michael Rosenbaum, who's our guest this week on The Lunch. We're at Greenblatt's Deli, located on Sunset, and you were saying that you tend to be more of a, a stay-at-home cat, that you don't rush out to dine a lot in L.A. Right. So you, you seem to know a lot about food. Well, there is this podcast, which does require that I dine. Oh, I know. And I, yeah. yeah, hence lunch. Right. The title. I understand yeah. that. But, uh, but me? Yeah. Just a, just a guy. Right. Just but, a guy who likes to eat. But what are your favorite places to go in? I love Pache. Yeah? Right up the hill on Laurel Canyon. Right. I go there, and believe it or not, I go there, and the guy who manages the place, my friend Scott now, went to college in Evansville, Indiana, where I shot the movie. What are the odds of that? We're very and, small. In the last couple of years, we became friends. I was like, he's like, you don't know Billy Nadeau, do you? I'm like, what? And we figured out that we live. So, I love Pache. It's it's authentic Italian. It's just uh, I love their lasagna. I love I love the chicken and the mashed potatoes. I order it. It's only a half a mile from my house. It's convenient. It's wonderful. Have you eaten there? I have not. But now I'm going. Oh to. You, no, no! Listen to me. You'll thank me. I, you'll say, "Wow, you actually do know a lot about food." I've had a whole. Like I've had a yearning to find good like pasta alla vongole, like a good clam pasta in LA. So I'm kind of excited. That's my next quest to satisfy the Italian side of me. Have you tried Michelli's? That's no. I'm kidding. No. I don't know if they have that. I think they no. do that. But, but I like, you know, I like like uh, Asanibo for sushi. Mm-hmm. Have you had that? No. Asanibo for sushi. I'm Asanibo? telling you, most people don't even know about it. It's over the hill in Studio City. You make a right on Laurel heading east or southeast, right there in a the little uh, corner with a bunch of other stores, and right near Lala's, which is also fun, a little Argentinian place. Uh, but Asanibo, it's a little pricey. But their sushi is dynamite. I'm telling you, try it. You know, I never got into sushi until I lived within like decent distance of a shore. Like, it's, you shouldn't get yes, into sushi yes. when you're living like near Lake Ontario or Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan. Yeah, probably exactly. Not. But yeah, but uh, <laughs> and is it is it also not the great thing about LA that you can be in like the strangest mini mall in the world and there's an amazing restaurant right there? I thought you were gonna say a, a great steak and potato. No. Have you ever had that? Few have had a steak and potato, but yes, there's always that good restaurant. They're like, "How does this belong? This doesn't belong in the mall, right?" Or how is this food this good being hidden in the mall? Or how hungry you must be, and it seems so good. There is a whole thing of shopping while hungry, which can, <laughs> there, which has ruined many a life. True. <laughs> You've been listening to The Lunch. Our guest has been Mr. Michael Rosenbaum, the writer, director, and star of the new film Back in the Day, available on VOD and also uh, in theaters from Screen Media on January the 17th. You can find Mr. Rosenbaum on the Twitter at mrosenbaum711, as he said, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I'm there, and I do respond sometimes if you make me laugh. Well... W- you can, of course, find this podcast at The Lunch Podcast, and I'm your regular host, James Rocky, on Twitter under that name, James, R-O-C-C-H-I. More importantly, Mr. Rosenbaum, thank you very kindly for joining us. I love this. this is, I'd, love, I'd love to do another lunch with you. We don't have to record it. At, well, you know, at your leisure, sir. But more importantly, until you're listening out there next time in podcast land, go to the movies with your friends, have a meal afterwards, talk about it. It's a good thing. That's life.
Yeah.